Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shiat Day, New York. Well, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we're here with a world's first, at least we think it's a world's first, back-to-back, pod-to-pod show experience. Uh, Adam Pierno is here doing the Disruptor Series podcast, and immediately following, I will be doing Adam's podcast, The Strategy, Inside Everything. Adam, hi. Hello. How are you? That was a big That was a big intro you had to do there. Well, listen, you've done some very interesting things. Uh, let me just tell you quickly that uh, Adam is the chief strategy officer of Santee Advertising, and he's just written a terrific new book called Underthink It, a marketing strategy guidebook for everyone. A mouthful. Yes, there's there's just so much to talk about. By the way, when I first saw Santi advertising, I thought it was Sanity advertising. A lot of people do make that mistake. I get a lot of cold emails from salespeople that type it out as Sanity, but no, it's named after uh, Dan Santi, was the founder. Yeah, and so just just his name, not not Sanity or a hint to it. Well, what was interesting is you know this book under Think It. It was very sane. And I thought, wow, sanity advertising, you know, I thought it was very smart. Oh, you thought it was a positioning exercise? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of turning into one. It's turning into a bit of a rallying cry about about simplicity more than anything. Yeah, well, that's clear in the book, and we're, we're going to unpack it uh, because there's lots to talk about. But, um, you know, because we have a, uh, you know, a logo to live up to, I mean, there is a disruption at play here. Uh, and I think what's, to me, what struck me as quite palpable was that so many marketing books are overthinking strategy. And I just love the fact that you were underthinking it. So maybe talk a little bit about how you arrived at this title. The title actually came from an art director that I used to work with who would say that if if there was the uh, forest of people and opinions that gather around the ideas and start to look at work printed out and start to have a critique that's coming out of left field or even further, Mm -hmm. you know, out in the bleachers, he would say, hey, let's just let's underthink this. Let's not get crazy. Uh, and that always just stuck with me. And so as I was starting to develop the whole thing, it it came from, you know, I was a creative by trade. And I got this lucky opportunity to lead a strategy group and mm. build out a strategy group and started looking into how to train these people, you know, and even train myself. And as I kind of started putting together all the tools, I was asking people, you know, how do you train your staff in this, mm. in strategy? And to a man, to a person, everybody mm. that I asked said, when you find it, tell me. <laughs> and so I started just putting together bookmarks and uh, links and things. And when I you know, got an outline together, I realized this could be a book. Mm. I mean, I think I have the all the information yeah. that I want. And it was things that I had used and tools that I didn't even know existed. And I just kind of mapped it out as like, why is it over so complicated? Why mm-hmm. does why does strategy have to be so many five syllable words? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you read the book, um, you saw the device where I actually had the editors cross out words that were just overly big for no reason, right? And really tried to make a case for simplifying it and keeping it simple. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. Uh, I think you know. There's probably something in. Uh, you know, obfuscating is where the margins are. You know, using a big word so someone's intimidated and absolutely uh, and what have you. Well, there's yeah, there's a couple reasons why I think it gets complicated. You know, one of them is is just that it's like the, if I can make it proprietary, then I can own it. Mm-hmm. Versus um, 
if if you understand it, you can do it without me potentially, or the guy next to me could do it. You know, the guy across the street. Well, I think in the, in the spirit of that uh, simplification, I, I like. There's a moment in the book where you say, you know, here's how to boil down the job of strategy, and you just you have you have three questions. Uh, you've got these three, and I think that this is great on on any project, whether it's a an advertising project or a marketing project, you know, a product positioning project. Uh, I love these three questions. Uh, first, what is the real problem we're trying to solve? So many times the clients come and they say, "We want to do this," mm. or "We want to do," you know for like a multi-unit restaurant. We mm. need traffic. Well, okay, yes, you do. But is that the, that's not really the root cause that I can address. I can do things to get you traffic, but a lot of times they'll have a side effect that you didn't intend. Right. There's probably a root issue that we can address. Mm-hmm. And if we can't, the job of strategy is to bring you the answer to that question that you didn't even know you were asking. Mm-hmm. It's not to just solve the thing you can ask. You could do that yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you could pump out an FSI or a social campaign or whatever it is to just drive, you know, heightened awareness and go with it. Yeah. So I, I think is the is really the first question on any assignment. What's the real problem you're trying to solve? I think that's great. The second one that you lay out is uh, again, it's so simple, but uh, I don't think we ask it enough. What does success look like? Yeah. Uh, more often than not, it's they tell us what they want, and agencies just run and create a, create a campaign to do it. Sometimes it's like you know they may just need to get bonused, you know, and they need to do this extra thing, or the CEO wants to try this, and there's really no metrics around it. Well, let's think about that. What do we want to do? Sorry, mm-hmm. I know you're a CEO. You would mm-hmm. never do that, Rob. <laughs> but yeah, really putting ropes around the ring, I call it, and trying to figure out, you know, what are we what are we really trying to make happen? That will make everybody feel like a winner. And mm-hmm. for the agency, like we stay employed. Right. Isn't that delightful? <laughs> and then the third question uh, is what are the constraints? Uh, or as I would phrase it even more simply, what's holding us back? You yeah. Know? I mean, you, you have the experience as a creative to know how important constraints are. And that's where creativity really happens. There's so many people right now, so many strategy people talking about how strategy is just another form of creative expression. Mm-hmm. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And having constraints is what makes that possible. It's like mm-hmm. knowing what the tension is that you're building off of or even defining that sometimes. That's a really powerful tool. I think what's interesting, though, when you say it in the book, too, though, is, uh, yes, strategy is very creative. But... Uh, you say the thing that that I've always believed too, which is the brief is not the destination. You know, the, and, and I love the way you phrase this too in the book. The job of the brief is to inspire creative that that inspire work that works. Yeah, if you just wrote a brief, if I just wrote a brief, and I feel like, oh, I was the auteur of that brief, <laughs> and the creative team comes back with C plus work, I failed. Right. Right. I mean, I haven't done my job. The creative team is kicking a garbage pail. The creative director is like, why does this work suck? Mm. Clients probably thrilled. No, I'm just kidding. The client is disappointed because they're not they're not inspired by the work. Um, The job is for you to write the thing that makes the next person do something inspired and amazing. Right. So it's give them the information that lights them up and gets them going. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And as a creative myself earlier in my career, I could always tell when someone loved the brief. Right. And that facilitated, that let me love the creative that I was going to produce and put that extra thought in and let's stay an extra hour and just keep going yeah. more ideas because you're uh, lit up by that. It's just some kind of insight or some nugget in there where you could tell someone really thought about it and gave you something delicious to, to eat. It's interesting. I met um, a guy named Jerry Hirschberg, who was uh, the head of Nissan Design. Mm-hmm. He was a great car designer. And um, he had this theory that uh, when you love the work, 
uh, and you love the process that showed up in the car yeah. that they built, which I, which I think is really It true. does create a through line that goes from end to end when somebody, at, you know, each part is inspiring the next person. It creates a chain reaction of passion and, and care. I love that. The other interesting thing that you talked about was, um, you know, you were, you're, you're a former creative. You know, I'm a former creative, uh, although I feel like I'm creative in more places now, yeah. <laughs> just not officially, uh, you know, tasked, you know, with, with, with writing uh, the copy, as it were. Um, what I found interesting, and uh, I'd be curious if you found this too, is that when I was a creative you know, the world before the brief was completely unknown to me. And when the brief showed up, it was like my first reaction was this is not right for whatever reason. Yeah, you always fight against the brief. Yeah. However, what's very interesting is that now that I'm involved with all parts of the business, you realize, and I'm curious again to see if this is your take too, how much creativity goes into that upstream moment. Yeah. When you were... um you were an ECD, a CCO for a while, so mm-hmm. you were probably involved more with the brief even at that stage than when you were a writer. Yeah. So you had more exposure to it. But even as a CCO or even an ECD, you're not there. Uh, you're not there the day that the sheet's either blank. Yeah. Or the day that right. the client says, "Wow, look how many broken pieces we have here." Right. You know, they're please, not. They don't know what the real problem is. Yeah, please turn this Lego into a dinosaur. <laughs> you know, you're not there for that. No, that's true. Uh, I was very lucky. The first creative director job I had, there was no planning team. There was no strategy team, mm. and so I was teamed up with. There was a very, very talented uh, media director. And a really good account director, and they both had you know really good boutique agency experience, mm. and so the three of us created a brain trust of the strategy team. Right. So I was exposed to media tools, and they just gave me logins and trained me on how to use it. And I was trained on all these things. We all traded notes. So at that point in my career, I really started to figure out. Oh, I can connect these dots. I can mm. learn about this customer. I can figure out what's relevant to them. But it still has to be creative. So when the account guy would go away and turn that into a brief, we would have really deep discussions about the language in it and every word, trying to make every word mean something. Mm -hmm. And this comma shouldn't be here because this comma is making it two parts. Or there's a lot of creativity. I guess there's a lot of nuance to it. Mm -hmm. Um, There should be more creativity even than I put into it. And that's that's a a result of time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the the people on my team, are they'll write – and write and write and write and write and then get it back down to a single page, you know, a brief or a page and a half if if they have to include a lot of mandatory. Yeah, well, I think uh, the writing piece is very interesting. Uh, you know, there's this whole um, Jeff Bezos movement that, uh, you know, rather than doing a PowerPoint in the meeting, there's a six-page document that in the first half hour of an hour meeting, everyone reads that six-page document yep. and then they have the conversation. Uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a similar way, uh, we were working on a brief at the agency that was vexing to the to the planner. And I just told the planner, I said, go away and write three pages. This is basically my solution to everything. Go away and write three pages. It's a good solution. But what was interesting is that she went away. She writes the three pages. I read the three pages. You know, and sure enough, on page two, I circle a single sentence. I'm like, that's the idea. Yeah. Yeah, she needed to get into a flow state where she wasn't worried about filling in the form. Right. If you're filling in the form, that's that's deadly. Yeah. That getting into the just long form, writing it out, and then reducing it back down to, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going to circle this. I'm going to underline that. That's the critical 
That's the critical piece. With regard to the six-page doc that we read, we've toyed with, uh, for our creatives, sending them the brief 48 hours before the kickoff meeting. Mm -hmm. Read this before you come. Then when we meet with you, we're going to show you examples to inspire you, or we're just going to take questions, or we can run through it again uh, and see if it sounds good when we say it out loud so that people have time to consume it. Because part of the the reaction that, you know, this is wrong, Mm -hmm. which was always my reaction to, goddamn planner doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. They never had to do this. Right. Uh, We want to cure that by giving people the time, that frustrating time of kicking the garbage chaos and testing the brief and and trying to work the kinks out of it Mm -hmm. and seeing, you know, when one of the very few trainings I've gotten as a planner was when you're writing a brief, when you're writing your single most important idea, come up with a sample solution. And if you can't come up with any, the brief's probably not good. It's not tight enough. So knowing that I do that, knowing that my team does that, the creative team, if they have two days before the kickoff meeting, probably can't resist putting the puzzle together just a little bit, even, you know, on their drive home or wherever they are at the gym, just thinking about, oh, okay, I could turn this over that way. I could do that. Here's three ideas or this is deadly. By the way, though, I think philosophically it says actionable document versus, you know, destination. Yeah. Like you're not there. And here's the brief and God light comes down and the angels, the archangels begin to sing and then you (laughs) moonwalk out of the room. I mean, it becomes a very, uh, you know, uh, a piece of utility. A hundred percent. Yeah. Because another thing that I really found flowing out of my fingers into the keyboard when I was writing the book was, I'm not the answer. People want the strategy person to have the answer. And when you're presenting the brief, it's like presenting creative. You Mm -hmm. want people to go, oh, that's correct, right? Mm -hmm. Let's all line up behind that Mm -hmm. and we're going to do something. I don't know. Like an art director who's got 20 years experience has great insights. And if they've been working on the business, they know a lot about the customer and the brand and the business. They can write a better brief sometimes just from rereading mine aloud and being like, oh, this isn't right. It should be mm-hmm. that. You're right. That's better. Mm-hmm. Knowing when to say that's a better idea or let me think about that. I want to process and decide if it's better. That's a hard thing for people to do with egos like ours mm-hmm. where I do want to be right. Right. I want people to think I'm smart. Yeah. So that's a challenge to yourself to say, oh, I'm going to step back and consider that maybe this person has a better idea and then figure out how to go with it. Yeah, I think uh, one thing I also liked about, um, I think I saw this on your website, uh, was you call out uh, the uh, the time limit on CMOs today. Yeah. So uh, I think you, you said it's, uh, and I've read this too, you know, you have 24 months. It's, it's almost like so-and-so is just hired as a CMO. And ticking first, clock. Exactly. Tick, 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 tick. So, you, so as from the CMO standpoint, uh, they've got 24 months. Uh, and then when it comes to you knowing that, I think my sense was that it, it, it added some urgency to your process. A hundred percent. I mean, we know, look, if the, if the CMO relationship is 24 months for the kind of brands that most agencies are getting, you know, mm-hmm. there's some that have lifers and yep. you know, those bigger brands, but, uh, and a succession plan, but for most brands, year and a half, two years, that means the agency is going to turn. Yep. So you have a chance to either make, extend that person's span there to what, 30 months, you know, three mm-hmm. years, maybe if they're really crushing it or, or keep them there, keep them engaged or to do enough good work to get the replacement account when they go away. Yep. You got to crank, you got to mm-hmm. crank because their the CMO is under so much pressure and the, the hilarious thing that we always forget and now elevated at this point in my career, knowing CMOs, this, the sliver of what I do 12 hours a day and it's like one and a half percent of their job. They just show up to the meeting and they're like, amuse me. 
<laughs> I just came from the financials meeting right. and now I have to go to the operations meeting and show me some funny TV boards or show me the website that's going to make me laugh. Right. I don't want to, they don't want to be let down. And two letdowns, and that could be a typo. Yeah. That could be just something uninspired or they didn't feel heard. That creates a real tension for them. But interestingly, in, in your book, though, and, and, I, and I thought this was, this was powerful, you, you challenge the conventional thinking. You, you challenge the four Ps. Yeah. So in some senses, uh, the last P of promotion, yes, I think there is that, that factor. But it seems like in the, the nature of underthinking uh, – you're you're challenging. I mean, are the four Ps still relevant? I don't. This has been debated. Some people have definitely come at me. That's one of the key areas where people are like, "What are you talking about?" But the point of it is. Like, by the way, let's define the four Ps for those who don't know. Sure. Uh, product, place, price, promotion. Promotion. Yeah. Think about Squarespace as a product, mm. or Facebook as a product. All those things, except promotion. You know, product, price, place. Mm. Those are the same. Squarespace. All those things happen at the mm. same time. And the relationship between utility and the price, that's kind of what's setting up value, which is a totally different right. set of uh, – a different acronym. So I don't think it's always relevant. By the way, it. you should – I loved your, uh, your your definition of value, which was joy minus pain. Yeah. Joy it, minus pain How excited value. am I versus how long am I on hold with some customer service person to fix this? Very good. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, so I, again, so challenging uh, – you know, this 4P model. The other thing I, I read in your book, too, again, another disruption was the challenging of the side-by-side model. You know, this I thought was, was again, yeah, I really thought about that. Are we really choosing between A and B anymore? I don't think we really are. I mean, I don't, I don't think our brains work that way. Hmm. We, uh, we've done some research. There's, there's a brand, a hardwood floor cleaning brand that we work on, and we did all this research into the emotion that the customer feels when they're buying this product. Mm. And my prediction was like, they're not going to feel emotion about mop liquid. (laughs) But they had these crazy ranges of intense emotion. And then in thinking through it and then doing follow-up groups and follow-up research, they don't have emotion about the product of 99% water, 1% cleaning solution. They have a high level of emotion of the hardwood floor. That's the centerpiece of their house or a $20,000 investment. There's a reason why mentally, system one, they have this reaction to it. It's probably not your label or the color of the trigger or, or any of those things, right? Especially as you get lower down the food chain on like a $3, $5 product. You know, a car, that's a different, that's mm-hmm. a different thing. There's more thinking. But most CPG stuff is just gut reaction, don't you think? I think so. I mean, you mentioned system one. I mean, that that's what, uh, Daniel Kahneman? Is that yeah, from? Uh, that's right. Thinking fast and slow. Right. So uh, maybe talk a little bit about uh, what you know about this sort of system one, system two thinking. I don't know as much as he does, but that's uh, <laughs> system one is kind of your reptile brain. It's It's the thinking that you do without thinking about it. And then system two is the consideration thinking mm-hmm. that you do. So that would be buying a car or thinking about your education. But the decisions you make just to get through life System one, your, your brain is on autopilot. It's trying to concentrate energy the way he describes it to think about those bigger, deep thoughts and prepare, protect you from falling into a hole. And, I, and again, I think what I, what I also saw in the book was uh, underthinking on the part of the consumer, that the consumer is underthinking most things because they're living in, as you call it, reptile brain. I, I just think they're, you know, in, in a world where uh, the true scarcity is attention. Yeah. 
You know, that's the real scarcity. You just had Ferris in here, didn't you? Uh, no, uh, I mean, I think you know, it's, it's him. I think it's a lot of people. Uh, you know, this is this is uh, this is an issue that 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 the that the consumers themselves are underthinking. Yeah, we don't have the time to think about it. Like we have this bottle of water. I, you just walk up and you just grab whatever's available, don't you? I mean, it, there's too many decisions to be made. You would never be able to get out of your house. Yeah, I mean, unlike the the choice of listening to a podcast, which I think is very considered, highly considered, yes, sir. And uh, between this one and the one that's going to happen right after, in the first ever pod to pod, you're excited. Uh, I, can see I am. I, I, you know, I like I like doing these. Put first you on the hot seat. It's yeah. very good. Um, I, I I I agree with you 100 percent that there is um, underthinking on the part of the audience. Uh, and I do think process-wise in agencies and with clients, we do need instinct over uh, rational thinking, you know, most of the time. That's a, it's a real challenge to sit down with clients and tell them, hey, I know this is important to you, but you have to believe me that nobody cares about your candy bar the way you care about it. Mm-hmm. Like, and nobody can. And I love it, and I want to do crazy good work for it, and I think about it a lot, and let's go do the research. But the customer at the checkout line at the grocery store is really reacting to the red color in the wrapper or it's the box all the way on the left that their kid can reach. I mean, it's really weird things that make people make those choices. Yeah. And it's not deep consideration of this ingredient is superior to that ingredient in satisfying my energy needs. No, man. It's just like some dumb reason why their grandfather gave them the same kind of candy bar when they were little. Yeah. I think as you say that, there's a value, uh, and I wouldn't call it underthinking or overthinking. I guess I would call it uh, revelatory thinking, and that you have revealed this insight that that was the one your grandfather gave you. Yeah. I think a big part of our jobs in our business is revelation for clients, like shining a light where they hadn't been looking, going, Hey, this is a thing. You know, this is some. This is part of your DNA. Yes. You know, this is this is important to people. Whoever thought that. Uh, you know, maybe the clients weren't thinking that um, the Jeep vehicle on the moon would be important to someone buying, a, you know, a Rubicon or a Renegade today. But there is something interesting about that. Right. that now maybe, there's a story that, that I can exactly, tie it to, and that demonstrates the ultimate, you know, Renegade driving right. off-road, right? Or uh, you know, or, or whatever, whatever American spirit, whatever, whatever it is that we tie to, as you say, as the the, the story. I think that this is important because. There is a tension when you say underthinking that as a client, I may say, well, then I'm going to be underpaying. You know, it's like, yeah. well, what am I paying if you guys really aren't thinking? Yeah, no, no, right. no. We are thinking hard so you don't have to. It's more about think, right? simplifying. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we're still doing the same amount of work. My days have not gotten shorter. We're still doing the same amount of research and, and maybe more. It's more about knowing which tools to use when. And for the part of the client, my view of it is that. That CMO who has that short time span, the marketing manager who has the same kind of similar related time span in their job, they're getting a trillion things a day thrown at them. And everybody who sees Ad Age or Ad Week or just watching TV and sees a good commercial or gets mm. a new app is in their office telling them because it's the most fun thing that they can think about. Right. Have you tried this? How come we're not doing that? How come this brand is doing that? Our competitor just did this. Underthink it means you chill. The people that you're paying will bring you the. Th- we'll look at all that stuff, and we will bring you the two things you need to worry about. Mm-hmm. And if you say, "Hey, I'm interested in Snap," 
you don't need to worry about Snap. Snap's not right for you yet. Like we're going to pay attention to that. And when it's right, we will bring it to you along with an idea and a practical yeah. application of how to use it. Yeah. It's a, a little bit of landscape analysis and a little bit of pacing for them, too. Yeah. Yeah, Very, because everything's a fire hose otherwise. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, it can drive the, the people, you know, when they're 24-month stint insane. <laughs> it can drive everybody insane. <laughs> well, before we get uh, a little bit more into your, uh, your your process, one thing I will say about the book uh, that's great. Now, you work in a small market agency, and I yes, think sir. what's very nice about the book is that there's so many good references. I mean, we talked about Daniel Kahneman, but you you bring in stuff from McKinsey, you bring in stuff from Bain. You, it's very nice to be in one place, and if I'm uh, either a, a planner, a young planner, or again someone without the tools and resources, suddenly in this one book. I get exposed to all of this thinking. Yeah, it's I. It's called the guidebook. It's meant to be dog-eared. So for a young, most of the people who have read it, um, and I've been really satisfied seeing people respond mm. this way, are younger planners or director-level people that are reading it and passing it down. Yeah, and either you know buying copies for their team, please buy the copies, <laughs> or just handing them available a copy. on Amazon. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> But it's meant to be kept on your desk and dog-eared and written in the margins and used. I do the same thing with it. Just flip through it Mm -hmm. and say, oh, I'm stuck. Let me think about this. Or, Mm -hmm. oh, I haven't thought about it this way. Or I want to go back to the beginning and rethink this brand from scratch or the business that they're in. Uh, So it's it's meant to be used that way. And that's why it's written so casually. It's meant to be like a quick read so Mm -hmm. that you get through it and you go to the end. And lastly, there is a bibliography. Go read all those books. Yeah. I mean, read those books before you read my book. Yeah. No, uh, believe me, the, the underthinking is a gateway to books on overthinking. I yeah, mean, I think 100%, that's- 100%. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's very powerful about it. <laughs> well, uh, I, one thing I think that you should share with the people is maybe your process, you know, just, just how, uh, you know, you, you work when you sign up a client day one. I mean, this sort of the foundational stuff. I mean, maybe yeah, walk yeah. us through sure. your process. So we split, we want to split it through three phases, right? There's the foundational phase, the campaign phase, and then- post, which is, did it work, is what I call that. Mm-hmm. You know, or what have we learned here? And so in the foundational phase, that's where all of the big, heavy-hitting strategy research projects that we all want to show off, mm-hmm. you know, those are the things that make up the back half of the case study after the great work. But that's persona development. Mm-hmm. That is understanding the business landscape and creating the context. That might be user journeys, which, you know, I don't know, I'm 50-50 on those, right. just depending on the the brand and the category. Well, you need user journey just so you can have a good meeting. They're great for meetings. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if, if they're as valuable, but it depends on the brand and depends on the, the category for sure and the climate that they're in. Um, so all those things happen in the foundational mm-hmm. set. From that work, we usually don't get to do all of those things. I wish we did. But from that work, anybody that's going to do the next project can lean on that work that you've done and pick it up and use it. So yep. whatever you're going to do next, a website, a ad campaign or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, then the campaign is, the campaign phase is where we're writing a brief to get to work output. Mm-hmm. And that might be TV campaign, mm-hmm. might be digital, mm-hmm. might be social, who knows. Might be all those things. Usually, yes. We have a number of different briefs. So in the book, I actually write a sample brief and mm-hmm. show the brief that we were using at the time, which has already evolved. But we now, we have a social campaign brief. We have a mm. social content brief, regular creative brief. I mean, we, we have three or four that add in and remove pieces to make them more relevant to the creative people or whoever's yep. making something. And then the last phase is like, did this work? Yeah. Did we fail? 
How to <laughs> yeah, and then <laughs> but, how to adjust. And then that meant that is meant to loop back around. Yep. To restart for the next campaign or the next, you know, look at the foundational work and the foundational elements. And without doing that, you know, we have a, a great team of analysts that are always looking at the results. Mm-hmm. And we shared this document with our writers about emails. And it was, you know, this really we found this really good article about best practices. And I we sent it to him and I just like, well, that's good. They might do something with it. Right. Well, the writer came in and he said, hey, he handed me. A, he's like, hey, would you take a look at this? And I said, yeah, let me look. And he said, well, I've been using those tips, but I've never heard new results. Are, are they better? Am I doing better or what? And it was like, oh, you actually want the feedback on the thing that you're trying to improve at. Yeah, that seems reasonable, doesn't it? <laughs> so that we were collecting the data. We just weren't telling anybody. Right. That was poorly executed uh, third phase. Well, good. Well, you, you know, you corrected it. So let's talk a little bit about your journey. So sure. you were an art director. I was. Yeah. I was an art director. director and... I started at, uh, I went to school in Boston, mm. Boston University, and I got hired right out of school at Hill Holiday. Mm-hmm. I was super lucky to work there. Uh, and then uh, got recruited to Jay Walter here in New York. And I thought for sure that I was going to be like the big hero, come back home. My parents still live out on the island. I thought, okay, I'm the return, the conquering hero. And you came to JWT as a creative? Yeah, as an art director or senior art director, I guess. And uh, the night that I came to town before the interview, I called my buddy mm. and said, hey, I'm in town. And he introduced me to my wife mm. who grew up in Scottsdale. There you go. So two years later, we were out there. And that's that's what brought us out there. And I just thought, well, I have my brain. I could probably do this job anywhere. You got your brain and you move for love. Yeah. Well, that's what I did. And you don't you, I, you can't prepare yourself for the culture shock of the agency world in New York versus the agency world in, you know, a smaller market like that. Yeah. Um, so it took a while. So I was a creative director there, obviously through the experience and the big brands that I got to work mm. on, Domino's and Dunkin' Donuts and mm. some killer brands and did some good work. Yep. Um, you get out there and it's like, okay, well, you can you can move up two levels because you've touched those things right. and you can speak to those things. So it was excellent. Like I told you, I got to work with a media director and a account director at Santee, mm-hmm. um, and I was the CD, kind of learning planning, mm-hmm. exploring planning. And I had been at Hill Holiday when planning launched mm-hmm. at Hill Holiday. Mm-hmm. So I had been exposed to it, but not didn't really – I was too low on the totem pole then mm-hmm. to really engage or, or learn it. Uh, always just, it stuck. It just was one of those things where I always wanted to know more. I always had more questions. I probably Mm. drove planners crazy Mm. because I would ask a million questions. Um, So I left and moved to Atlanta uh, to try some other stuff and stayed in touch with Dan Sandy Mm. and hit my wife, decided, you know, she didn't really want to live in Atlanta. We wanted to move back. Mm. And when I called him, he said, hey, I don't don't need a creative director. I have, I've Mm. hired someone, but I could use you for strategy. Hmm. You're you're great at that, and I was like, oh my god, that's awesome because I'm that's really I think what I wanted to be doing. Oh great! And so it's been awesome because we built out this practice, and we're doing all kinds of consumer research, all kinds of strategy projects, and it's bringing me back to New York to do projects with clients of all sizes and shapes. So it's it's been fantastic. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you're uh, an art director who knows strategy and can write. That really would make you a unicorn. <laughs> I don't. I think art direction is my weakest of those three things. <laughs> well, so. it got you here. So at, at this point in the show, we, we usually ask for one piece of advice. Yeah. So uh, I thought it would be interesting because you called out these CMOs only have 24 months. So mm-hmm. today's Tuesday. 
Uh, and since the clock is ticking, what should a CMO do on Thursday? This week, what should they do? Oh, God. Uh, I would say to go through their plan for the next six months and cut out half of the things. Mm. There's too much. All the CMOs we talk to or the founders that we talk to are doing too many things. And the media, the the trade is telling you, you have to be here. You have to be there. You have to be there. Well, you can't be all those places well. You can be in all those places half-ass. Right. But you can't do everything very well for unless you're Pepsi. Yeah. Right? I yeah. mean, there's only a handful of global brands that can afford to do those things. Right. I would say ruthlessly go red pen your your plan mm. and cut out half might be exaggerating, but it probably isn't. Mm. You could probably make a case for cutting half of those things based on either results or cost and rolling that money into better investments that are going to return for you, have better results. Well, I, I think that that's very good advice. I heard a great story. I think I think uh, uh, Lee Cloud told me this story that uh, Steve Jobs had asked his team, uh, "All right, what are the what are the ten priorities for next year?" And they laid out a you know a list. Okay, Steve, here are the, here are the ten things we're going to do, and he crossed out seven of them. He goes, "Great, do those three. Right? Yeah, you have to focus. Yeah." That's good. the key. Well, good advice. Thank you. All right. Well, that's the, that's the first part of our pod to pod. Right, we did it. Okay. Yeah, Adam, I can't thank you enough. It was uh, it was very cool of oh, you, man, uh, you kidding me? to do the Disruptor Series podcast with your very disruptive book. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You've just listened to part one of the world's first pod to pod back to back podcast. Tune in to part two, the strategy inside everything at iTunes now.